We are a week away from Halloween. 2020 is winding down, but that doesn't mean that content is running out in the entertainment business. Hello and welcome to episode eight of Nerdsplosion on the Candy Clark Podcast. I am your host, the Candy Clark himself, Sean Clark. I am joined by John Wintrobe. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. But and, I'm probably not loving life as much as the Witch of Envy loves Subaru. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very good point. All right. Before Grand Chip, sure, check out the uh, Candy Clark Spotify and the CandyClark.com for, for a lot of content po- posted throughout the week. Let's get into this. So we have a new Disney animated film coming out in 2021 and we got a trailer dropping for it so what is that yeah so this is raya and the last dragon which is a southeast asia inspired action adventure movie that's coming from disney animation studios the studio behind our favorite movies like tangled and frozen and wreck it ralph um the trailer begins with a kind of heist scene that appears to act as a prologue since uh, the main character Rhea is much younger in this scene as well as her animal friend being much smaller than he is later in the trailer and it kind of acts as a way of showcasing her skills showing how fast and agile she is and how intelligent she is as well um the movie's plot apparently revolves around Rhea as an adult looking for the last dragon believing that the last dragon will be able to bring peace to the world although we also don't know why the world is out of balance and what that peace exactly means the film is directed by don hall carlos lopez estrada and paul briggs um the first two names have directed films before with don hall um doing big hero six back in 2016 or 2015 and um carlos lopez estrada directed blind spotting which is the racial commentary movie that starred David Diggs who you'll probably recognize from um what's the the play uh, that oh, Hamilton. Miranda did yeah Hamilton, Hamilton. <laughs> yes Hamilton that yeah that's 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 really cool I'm looking forward I'm looking forward to this trailer sorry this movie what I'm what I'm excited about is it seems like a very fun action adventure movie and also, Kelly Marie Tran is the, the lead voice actress, which is great because I really want to see her in something that isn't being totally butchered in The Last Jedi and having 90 seconds of screen time in The Rise of Skywalker. I think so, she was fine in The Last Jedi, but whatever, man. That, that's, that's, something, that's something he and I are never going to agree on. But uh-huh. we can agree, though, that we are excited to see her as the lead uh actress in this movie that's gonna be very exciting to see and it's it, to me it feels like it, to, to me it feels like it's gonna be a really fun but hard film movie at the same time it kind of it kind of reminds me of a mix of brave and moana that those are some of the vibes that i got from this show obviously uh different inspirations and culture bases but it's that kind of film now both of those films have some serious problems, but they're still 
good. I mean, I think Braves much better than Moana. That's just my opinion. I gotta but, disagree with you there. Yes, <laughs> Moana is much better written and directed than Brave is. I thought Brave is bad, but it's just that I think a lot of the marketing hindered Brave a lot because it was not marketed as the film it ended up being, while Moana was. Yeah, it is not. The main reason I prefer Brave is, is simply because of a better protagonist uh, is the main reason. I mean, I can't disagree with that. Um, the main character of Brave is definitely better written than Moana is in Moana, but the story of Moana is way better. I can, I can maybe agree with that, but I wasn't as emotion invested because of the writing. But anyways, um, but yeah, so from this trailer, I really got vibes from those two movies, and I'm hoping that this that this film is not only comes out when it does, but it's also a satisfying experience in theaters. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot of people are comparing the visual style of this movie to Avatar: The Last Airbender. Yes. That that is also something I was also about to point out. It's 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 a very the the uh, the motion when she is using her staff and going through the tomb at the beginning of the trailer. It, she was she was kind of using it in a similar way that Aang does, which is something that I noticed. So I think that is definitely a part of it. And I def and I, I read the Wikipedia. A plot synopsis and as you know wikipedia is not a hundred percent accurate but the true synopsis the plot synopsis was actually really hilarious it, it it literally ripped off the opening line from avatar but but using the plot of this movie where it says long ago the four nations lived together homie but everything changed when the when the great evil attacked and only the last dragon can bring harmony yes i'm i'm like all right this is this is a bit weird here, but that's... I guarantee you that someone probably just um, edited the Wikipedia page before you read it. Yeah, but because that's not what it actually says on Wikipedia. I'm reading the premise right now. <laughs> oh, so they changed it. Well, yeah, someone definitely went on Wikipedia and changed it because of the trailer. They had to do it when I was writing notes for this show. Great. Yeah, next, yeah, next time, just use the synopsis that's underneath the trailer on Disney's YouTube channel. <laughs> well, I read that, but I was just pointing out the similarity. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, there are similarities in the trailer. Again, that's why, why someone changed it on Wikipedia. But no, the premise on Wikipedia right now states that in the fantasy world of Kumandra, which is the world that Rhea takes place in, humans and dragons live together in harmony, but... <clears throat> After a sinister evil threatened the land, the dragons were all sacrificed in order to save the humans. And 500 years later, Rhea is trying to track down the last dragon in order to stop the sinister evil for good. Looking forward to this. Looking forward to this movie. Animation looked fantastic. Yeah, well, it always does. Disney's animation team has been um, doing pretty well with all of their 3D anime movies since Tangled back in 2010. Yes. That, which, which is the best animated Disney film since Aladdin. Oh, absolutely. No, completely agree. Hey, we Although agree. Big Hero 6 is also really good. Yeah, Big Hero 6, I would say, is like second or third. 
But you know, Big Hero Six is fantastic. I cannot disagree with that. All right, what is the next bit of news? Yeah, so Universal revealed this week that the Fast and Furious franchise might be finally coming to an end. Um, we're getting two final Fast and Furious movies, Fast 10 and 11, that are both going to be directed by Justin Wen, who, of course, directed the fourth, fifth, and sixth movies in the franchise. And the two currently do not have an official release date due to the ninth movie being pushed back the next year. Ah, you sounded very excited when you said that Fast and Furious might be coming to an end. I, I, I sense the excitement in your voice there. Well, I, I mean, I sound excited by this, but we all know that the franchise itself as a whole will probably not be coming to an end with these last two movies. After the success of Hobbs and Shaw last year, we're obviously going to get a sequel to that. And it wouldn't surprise me if we got even more spinoffs off of these movies. So Fast and Furious probably is not going away anytime soon. Yeah. But... It will be nice to see most of the cast and the directors working on these movies doing things that aren't Fast and Furious. This is very true. I do enjoy the Fast and Furious franchise. The first couple were very rough, but as it went along, it got better. Justin Lin also did Tokyo Drift, which I think is criminally underrated. I think it's a very, I think it's a very fun movie. I don't understand why it gets a lot of the hate that it does. I think it's a very fun and actually a good movie with a surprising amount of heart in it, uh, surprisingly. Justin Lin did uh, F- Fast and Furious, Fast Five, and, and he did... And Fast he did and Furious Six. six. Fast yeah. and Furious Six. I, I, there are so many different names that I, I can't remember every single name, but Fast and Furious Six, which I think is the best one of the four that he did. I think it's the second best Fast and Furious movie behind Fate of the Furious, which I think is by far the best written one. But when it comes to when it comes to these next three movies, so we have we have uh we have F9, which is which is John Cena and Vin Diesel basically butting heads because they are siblings in this universe, which I have to admit is pretty awesome. And I am interested in that movie, but yes, we have, we have, we have Fast Ten and Fast Eleven, so more Fast and Furious movies. I don't know what much more they can do. Honestly, we have already seen after next year nine of these movies, which, wow, that's that's a lot. But yeah, the the franchise itself is not ending anytime soon because Hobbs and Shaw is basically about to become a super good franchise of its own. The first movie I thought was a good first addition to this new thing because I really like both characters. And then we have other spinoffs possibly. So basically like Star Wars, it's it's just like, hey, we're going to milk so many movies out of this. It's not even funny. Yeah, but like at least with Star Wars, there's some kind of myth or like, genuinely good storytelling at the helm of it yeah i can't really say the same for fast and furious i'm obviously not the hugest fan of this franchise i can tell so i'm trying to keep my criticism to a minimum because most of it just ends up being that it's just not entertaining to me and i don't really like the characters yeah i i do enjoy the characters and i do think it is actually written well but i definitely will admit there are way better movie franchises out there i mean star wars is 10 times better than than 
even the best Fast and Furious movie, because obviously, in my opinion, Star Wars is the greatest fictional universe ever created. Simple as that. But, but yeah, with Star Wars, there's always new stories to tell. Even, even in between Phantom Menace and Rise of Skywalker, there's a, there's a lot of stories that haven't been told, and we're getting shows to tell those stories. Fast and Furious is okay. Uh, what as what what thing? Or what person is trying to destroy the world or do something bad to our characters and how can we stop them? There's only so much of that you can do. It's it's a good point. Star Wars, there's endless amount of stories. I mean, there's books, there's so many books and comics that tell new stories. Fast and Furious, you can't get that. So I am also excited that it's ending just because, look, man, summer 2019, my roommate then made me watch every single movie first movie through Fate of the Furious and there's three more which I'll watch them but there, there's other things I'd rather there's, there's other things I'd rather be watching but I just hope they're good don't be like Fast Five where it's just it's just dumb action like Fast Five is very popular I think it's one of the worst movies of the franchise because it's just dumb action don't be like those please yeah that's what, that's what I got to say about that. All right, what do we got next? All right, so Chris Hemsworth has revealed that Thor Love and Thunder, the fourth Thor movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, will begin filming in January 2021, which is roughly a year before it's set to release in theaters. Ah, uh, Thor Love and Thunder, directed by the great Taika Waititi. And this is this is going to be a very... Fun movie. I really hope that it comes out on its release date, which is February 11th, 2022, which is a year after it starts filming. Yes. So hopefully it, it goes through. Obviously, when it comes to anything in life, it's not a certainty with COVID anymore. One positive case and things can get delayed. Same goes for sports. Same goes for anything, basically. So if it can come out early 2022, I think that would be a, a breath of fresh air for cinema. And obviously, with Chris Hemsworth, Natalie Portman, and Taika Waititi, obviously, I am extremely excited for this, you know, considering the first four the film that Taika did is the best MCU movie. Controversial opinion, I know. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I'll always say it, but I am very excited to see this movie. Obviously, it takes place after Endgame, so seeing a, f- a feature movie with Thor after the events of Endgame is going to be very interesting to see. Uh, I'm really excited to see what the movie does with all the characters in the story it seems to be presenting, because, of course, James Foster will be Thor for the movie, and I'm interested to see what else they'll pull from Jason Aaron's run on Thor. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, Christian Bale's playing the villain. I'm really hoping that he's going to be playing Gore the God Killer because that would be amazing. Um, considering that the whole thing with Gore the God Killer is that he goes around killing gods. I don't even want to try to pretend that I understood what you just said. So, the, so let me get this straight. There's actually a God Killer. Yeah, yeah. There. So the whole thing with Gore is that... When he was a kid, his mom was stricken with illness, and he consistently prayed to his people's God for her to be healed, and it never happened, and she died. So ever since, he has struck revenge against all gods of all planets, of all cultures, and has killed everyone he's been able to find. Oh, my. 
that that would be awesome to see Christian Bale play as him because I I can just I I can just already picture it just based on your description and it sounds incredible. That that would be great. Get 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 it done, Marvel. Get it done. So looking forward looking forward to this movie. So we do have a release date for that, but another film that that's beginning to that's beginning to film that we don't have a release date for and what is that yeah so the rock currently does not have a release date at all but despite this it's going to start filming in spring as stated by drain the rock johnson himself um the film is of course being directed by Juan koi sarah who has only done not necessarily smaller movies but he's only done like minor action movies like run all night and the commuter um, the film will, of course, star The Rock as Black Adam, Aldous Hodge as Hawkman, and Noah Centineo as Adam Smasher. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this, Sean? So Black Adam, we don't have a release date, but I think it's going to be really fun. Obviously, going back to the Fast and Furious theme, uh, the, Dwayne The Rock Johnson was a good addition to that franchise, and he, he is one of the most charismatic actors in Hollywood, in my opinion. And to see him as this character, it's just going to be fun. I'm not going to take this film too seriously. You know, just, just depending on everything we know, it's not supposed to be taken super seriously. Me seeing Dwayne The Rock Johnson is fun. I, th- th- there is no reason why you can't have a good time watching a film with Rock. Even a dumb film like San Andreas you can enjoy because it's, it's, it's The Rock. The, the Rock just brings this energy and charisma to the screen and you just can't, you can't take your eyes off him because of how fun he is to watch and seeing him in this kind of role, I'm all for it. I'm, I'm not going to be super analytical of this movie. I'm just going to sit back and have fun with it. Yeah. Well, Aldous Hodge recently, the actor playing Hawkman shared photos on Instagram of the comics he's reading in preparation for this thing. And considering that there were mostly um, Jeff Johns run on JSA, I guarantee you that this will not be a serious film at all. JSA was a very fun run on the Justice Society of America's characters, including Hawkman and Adam Smasher, and, um, and Black Adam appeared in a handful of the issues as well. So I guarantee you that this will not be a serious movie, which isn't to be... Um, surprising concerning that most of DC's recent movies, with the exception of the Joker, being more um, comedic and lighthearted. Right. And I think that's a good direction DC's going on. Uh, Birds of Prey was very fun. And I am, and this is going to be an interesting movie to watch for sure. I'm expecting it to be the same tone wise as Aquaman was back in 2018. So, hey, I don't have a problem with that. Um, as far as DC goes, uh, the Snyder Cut for Justice League is is getting new scenes, and we, we're hearing actors reprising their roles. Yeah, this includes Jared Leto and Joe Manganiello are reprising their roles as Joker and Deathstroke. Um, the former, I'm more excited for the uh, the latter, not so much. Um, Jared Leto was really not good in Suicide Squad. So not exactly the most excited about that. Yeah, and, and I'm sorry. Like, to me, there's only one death stroke, and that is Manu Bennett. And Yeah, but Manu Bennett's not even that comic book accurate. As great as Manu Bennett is as Deathstroke, 
it's not even close to being anywhere near the comics. The easily the best interpretation of Deathstroke is Ron Perlman's version from Teen Titans. There hasn't really been an other comic book accurate take on the character since then. Okay, I'm not I'm not as in, I'm not as caught up with the comics as you, so that is fair, but I did enjoy uh Manu Bennett's portrayal of Deathstroke in Arrow season two. So part of me was hoping that we would see him in movies, but obviously that's probably that that's not gonna happen. It's wistful thinking, but oh well. Yeah. There yeah, there's a lot of reasons why that won't happen. The main one being that Manu Bennett's version of Deathstroke wouldn't be able to fight Batman. <laughs> Are you sure about that? Absolutely. Batman would wipe the floor with him. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, that settles that. And yeah, we're and obviously as we discussed in the earlier episode, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing some of the, some of the actors such as Ben Affleck and and uh, Ray Fisher filming new scenes. And and like we talked about earlier, this this new Snyder cut is going to feel like it's a brand new movie, which is interesting you know considering you know it's just adding stuff to what was already there and i don't know how much better it'll be but i'm at least curious especially with the recent news well you have to consider the fact that a good amount of the theatrical cut of justice week was filmed by joss whedon and the cuts and all the new footage that joss whedon shot are made extremely obvious usually by the difference uh, in physical appearance between the actors or the different ways that their characters are portrayed, especially Superman. I mean, once once again, all of Superman's scenes in the theatrical cut of Justice League were shot by Joss Whedon. None of them were done by Zack Snyder, which is probably one of the reasons why Henry Cavill doesn't have to return to do reshoots for this movie. True, and as 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 I have talked as I have talked about, Man of Steel was a was a good was a good movie i think very underrated and Zack snyder actually actually did portray superman well and that definitely was not the case in the justice league movie so that's that's at least encouraging yeah, i think my thing with how superman is portrayed in the justice league movie is it's fine he's very much like classic superman in the justice league movie the issue with that is that's not how Zack Snyder portrayed Superman and Man of Steel and BVS. And this is supposed to be the same character. So my yeah. issue isn't so much that it's not written well as much as the continuity doesn't work. Hmm. And even then, um, Superman really isn't that good in the theatrical cut of BVS either. It's really only the director's cut that he's actually a well-developed character. Because in the theatrical cut of Justice of uh, not Justice Week, but uh, Batman versus Superman, he had less lines than Super than uh, Spider Man did in Captain America: Civil War. Oh Lord, I didn't realize perspective that. Perspective there, yeah. That's that's not good considering Spider Man was in literally one scene. Yeah, well, he he was in the movie for the Two airplane scenes. fight and his introductions. My bad, I, I the, forgot about the first the scene. Crit, yeah, and then the end crit that scene that teased homecoming so he had a total of three scenes as a cameo character in a team-up movie compared to superman who was a main character in a versus movie that was supposed to only surround two title characters oh that's rough yeah 
again, this is not the case in Zack Snyder's cut of the movie. And this was only done by Warner Brothers who wanted to trim the movie down so that they could show it more in theaters and do more repeated screenings of it. I am so thankful DC is starting to figure things out and not and not forcing remakes and reshoots of this. They're actually figuring things out, which is great. Well, it's not that they forced reshoots. It's that they forced the editors to trim down the movie. Um, I mean, there were always going to be reshoots for Justice League. Zack Snyder just wasn't available to do them, which is why they, they brought in Whedon. But the movie being two hours long and them cutting down so much footage for it, that is a Warner Brothers thing. But um, Joss Whedon is not directly um, a consequence of Warner Brothers wanting to trim down the movie. Um, he, Joss Whedon coming in to do reshoots was the culmination of multiple things. In fact, um, Zach originally wanted Joss to, to help with the reshoots on the movie. Um, but seeing as how much uh, Zack Snyder dislikes the additions Joss Whedon made to the movie, that probably didn't remain the case. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have imagined he wanted to go through with that. So should be interested in seeing this. Let's uh, let's move yeah. on. And more, yeah, more lighthearted or yes. fun news that we're more excited for. We got a kind of episode zero for Dr. Stone's second season that gives us a, a few bits of new footage, but is spent mostly recapping the events of season one. What were your thoughts on this recap episode, Sean? So yeah, I wa watched this when I woke up this morning, and it was it was a fun watch. Even though it wasn't, even though there wasn't an English dub, which is what I was used to, it was still very good. Uh, the 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 sub was actually really good. I mm -hmm. actually really enjoyed it, and it recapped the first season, which is fantastic. I love the first season because it is. It's, a, it's very fun, but it also creates a very interesting concept. It's, you know, it's a stone world where after every person and thing on Earth was petrified. Except for burbs. Except for burbs. And a good amount of animals. <laughs> okay, let me rephrase that. Every human was Yeah, petrified. every human and burb. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, after every human was petrified, it, this was a stone world where technology went went back to Stone Age because, you know, humans weren't around for like 4,300 4, years. So it's kind of a long time. And we see Senku, who is a genius scientist, uh, start to rebuild the world through science. The problem, though, is that he had to wake up this guy named Sukasa, who is extremely strong. He's basically a JoJo's character in a science anime. And... He only wants to reawaken he, we reawaken those that aren't, let's just say, terrible. He's, he's not willing to reawaken everyone. He just kills those that he doesn't like. Well, he wants to reawaken the youth so that he can reshape the world under their image rather than it being bound by the people of old. Yeah, because he, he hated the way society was before the, the petrification happened. Yeah, and Sukasa is basically like... He is the caveman that we would imagine would exist in the stone world. It's like this new state of being that the world is in was made for him. Yes, and basically Senku and Sukasa don't agree with how to go about rebuilding the world in the stone age. And yeah, we got stone wars. 
coming. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. The second season will follow the Stone War between their two villages. So that's going to be really fun. But yeah, really enjoyed seeing the 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 recap episode. Basically, the the recap was done in a good way. It was basically Ruri wanting Senku to tell her the story of season one so she can pass him down in legends which is kind of hilarious considering that Ruri was the one that told was the, was the one that helped tell Senku about his father and how how Ishigami village was created because you know it was Senku's father who was in space when the petrification happened great great two episodes by the way so so it was done very well season two comes out in three months very excited or no no no. i'm sorry i have to say it in the way Senku does get excited yeah um yeah and the end of the episode of course features um kohaku chasing down homura which is um sukasa's scout and we actually get to see homura in action which we didn't get in the first season and we learn exactly why sukasa revived her and it's because of her amazing gymnastic skills yeah, the fact that Kohaku, who is very capable, cannot keep up with her, is really telling just how incredible she is. Yeah, g- gymnastics is it is obviously a very difficult skill to be good at, and she just did it like it was nothing. Yeah, um, she also notices that Chrome Magma and Gen are missing, and. I wonder why. I imagine that we'll probably find out in the first episode of season two. Yeah, nice little uh, teaser moment there. Yeah, and we also get that hilarious moment of Senku tackling her only for her to easily knock him off because it's Senku. <laughs> yeah, Senku is not exactly a warrior. He He's strong in the, in the brains, but not in the muscle. Yeah, I mean, kind of similar to how Lelouch is in Code Geass. Yeah, that's a very good comparison, except Lelouch had a mecha. Yeah, but like, I mean, yeah, but Senku also has science, so. This is also true. This is also very true. And technically, uh, Senku did, did, win, did win the bout in season one, so. Yeah, but like. A lot of circumstances happened. Chrome kind of just passed out. Yeah. Like, it's not like Senku won through like actual fighting. All of the actual fighting was done by Kinro and Chrome. Yes. Oh, magma. Oh, magma. And I guess Kinro to an extent. <laughs> to an extent. Yeah. I mean, he was like he was kind of on drugs during his fight. So. <laughs> Good grief! But yes, season two should be very should be very awesome. Should be even better than season one. And season one was great, so get excited. It's going to be great. I am very excited. All right. You want to talk about ReZero? Floor I do is want yours. to talk about ReZero. Floor is yeah, yours. so uh, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of loving in this episode, as evidenced by the title having love in it six times. It's a little excessive. <laughs> yeah, a little but, bit. You know, you know it's, it's kind of warranted, but we'll talk about that in a minute. First of all, the episode begins with Subaru enjoying tea with Echidna, who in last episode we learned that she knows about his return by death. So that's pretty neat. That's pretty cool. And she discusses her disdain for the Witch of Envy playing with Subaru's wife the way that she is. Um, so that's exciting. 
Yeah, as we talked about in the last episode, the fact that he was able to tell Echidna and he just broke down crying was such a wholesome moment. And him being able to discuss freely with Echidna about this had to have been extremely satisfying. It was was, was great to see. Echidna, great, great. Mm -hmm. Best character this season. (laughs) Yeah, we, of course, um, learn because Subaru asks Akinna about Return by Death and how many times that he might be able to actually use it. And Akinna tells him that um, his Return by Death is likely powered by the witch's own delusion of her love, in quotations, for Subaru. Which likely means that the amount of times Subaru can return by death is infinite. Meaning that he can do it however many times he, he needs to in order to get the outcome that a kid, or not a kidna, but the Witch of Envy wants him to reach. Because the whole thing with this is that the Witch of Envy wants Subaru to succeed in his destiny without making any mistakes. And the only way for him to do this is, you know, to, to die and then not repeat those mistakes in his new life, new reality. Jeez, that, that it, it is just... It is psychologically brutal, to say the least, not to mention extremely painful. Yeah. Of course, Subaru then questions this, wondering why she would let Rem be comatose if this was the case. And Akedna tells him that that's likely due to the Witch of Envy not thinking Rem was part of Subaru's destiny. Which, of course, is probably not the case, considering that if that was the case, Rem would probably be dead instead of in a coma. Um, But that's just me. (laughs) Yeah, come on, Akidna, don't do Rem dirty like that, come on. Well, Akidna's just being honest, like, that's probably how the Witch of Envy actually thinks. Ugh, that's terrible, that's terrible. Yeah, um, Subaru then also asks Akidna about the rabbits that ate him alive. That's a fair question. (laughs) And, uh, she reveals to him that, uh, the various rabbits are actually one collective being known as the Great Rabbit that can multiply itself infinitely. And like the White Whale that we saw in Season 1, it, the Great Rabbit was also created by the Witch of Gluttony. Uh, yeah, so as we talked about, the, the rabbits were nightmare fuel, and now it makes sense. Yeah, they're all under one consciousness, which, and there was an infinite amount of them, which makes it probably the scariest creature in anime. Yeah, because it kind of just eats and eats and eats and eats and eats and eats. And there's an infinite amount of them, and you can't, and you have to kill all of them at once. Yeah, assuming that uh, they're currently in multiple form. I mean, you could get lucky and kill the main one before it multiplies, but like, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's not probably not going to happen. Like, it's Where's what... Reinhardt when you need him? <laughs> Yes, I actually forgot he existed because we have not seen him yet this season. Uh, that's because he isn't. I mean, if Reinhardt was in this season, you know how fast it would end? <laughs> Very quickly. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah, so the rabbits existing is extremely horrifying. We thought the white whale was a problem. This is, like, ten times worse. Uh, I think it's equally as bad. Because, like, the whole thing with the white whale was that um, it could just devour large amounts of people in a single instance with its fog because if you got swallowed by the white whale's fog you basically were erased from existence um so i'd say that they're equally as terrible threats and also um the white whale could 
multiply itself as well from a main consciousness, as we saw during its fight. So it's neat that the Great Rabbit kind of has something similar. That's that's a good point, but at the same time, you know, in the in the episodes where they fought the White Whale, it was it was like one, it was like a couple like huge targets. This is like thousands of targets at once, and it all has one singular purpose, and it's super aggressive. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that the White Whale and the Great Rabbit actually have the same purpose. Their whole thing is devouring people. Just the White Rabbit does it more literally than the the white whale does. Yeah. Um, also, the white whale, um, while it could multiply itself, um, if you killed the main one, the 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 copies would disappear as well. But if there's an infinite in the great rabbit, you don't know which one's the main one. Well, the whole thing with the great rabbit is that's not the case. You have to kill all of them at the same time. Which is a big problem. Yeah. So he learns that. Yeah. And of course, Subaru requests to talk to the Witch of Gluttony in order to get more information about the what the Great Rabbit and how to defeat it, and whether she'll be willing to let him defeat it. And of course, Echidna tells him that she can do it, but she'll have to go away and relinquish her power over the realm that they're currently in. Uh, this, of course, allows the other witches to kind of just enter the realm at their leisure. And instead of getting the Witch of Gluttony, Subaru gets the Witch of Pride, who rips Subaru's arm off without them even noticing. So, well, I've already started to notice the theme here. So, in Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, Pride was the worst one, was the most awful. And the Witch of Pride was also equally as awful. Well, I mean, she's bad, but, like, I'd say that when it comes to the witches in ReZero, the Witch of Envy is obviously the worst one, because she was able to kill all the other witches and steal their witch factors, which is why we have sin archbishops that aren't Envy that follow the Witch of Envy. It's a good point, but Pride is still awful. Yeah, no, Pride's pretty bad. I mean, but from what we see and the way that the others are being, like, especially the way that the Witch of Gluttony is being restricted, it seems like Pride actually isn't as bad as some of the other witches. It's not like how Pride was in Full Metal, where Pride was the most powerful because he was the first, not just because he was Pride. Makes sense. We also see Wrath. Yeah, so, like, the Witch of Wrath kind of just shows up the to save Subaru and I thought this was really weird because she's like oh like she has a very like heart motif going and she looks like what not not quite as evil in appearance as the other witches <laughs> at first glance so it was really weird when we learned that she was the witch of wrath from Echidna yeah I thought I thought she was the witch of lust when we first saw her exactly like that fits her motif way more but like I, I mean, I'm interested to see what, how the Wrath factor affects the Witch of Wrath, because she doesn't seem very wrathful, but you know, maybe that could be why she's dead. <laughs> well, she also, she also came in very angry when she first appeared. Yeah, but she was only angry at the Witch of Pride, not necessarily at Subaru himself. True, but that's understandable, but she still looked very wrathful in, that, in her introduction. I mean, kind of, but like... Oh no, I couldn't I don't buy her wrathfulness. It's too she's too sweet in appearance. I, get, I don't I, buy it. I get your point though. Like, yeah, her appearance does not indicate that she's the witch of wrath at all. Exactly. But yeah, after the witch of wrath disappears, we finally get 
the rich of Gluttony, who like Echidna had stated, um, would be in chains. And she also has a blindfold over her eyes, which makes sense because Echidna also warned Subaru not to make eye contact with her. Yeah, that was a horrifying sight to see her, you know, just, just her in chains and she has a very creepy voice. Yeah, and the and the seeming um Iron Maiden. Oh. Yeah. So she's seemingly inside of an Iron Maiden that with the with the front of it open and with these spider like legs allowing her to move around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yikes. Yeah, I, I imagine that she's chained up for a good reason. It's probably, it's probably due to her being extremely dangerous or evil. I mean, all she cares about is devouring things, so makes sense. Yeah, and she tells Subaru that she is more than willing to let him kill the great rabbit because as she sees it, um, the humans need to kill to survive just like the great rabbit does. So if killing the great rabbit will lead to them surviving and allowing to eat more, then she is more than welcome with having him killed the great rabbit. Seems As logical. It, yeah. She was also very impressed with how he defeated the white whale in the first season. Well, yeah, as am I. And that was also showing how awesome Krush and Wilhelm are. Mm -hmm. Could you repeat that sentence? You cut out a bit. Uh, it was it was it was impressive to see uh and Wilhelm defeat the white whale in that scene as well. Yeah. Uh, once he's done talking with the Witch of Gluttony, we of course see Echidna again, and um, before their conversation ends, Subaru requests that Echidna allow him to retain his memories of her, so that he may and hopes that he may see her again. However, Echidna tells him that in order for him to see her again, he'll have to be in more anguish than he was the last time he was summoned to her. Oh boy. That 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 sounds awful. Yeah. Um in exchange for retaining knowledge of Echidna, uh she keeps not the physical handkerchief from Petra, but kind of like a mental manifestation of it. As yeah. a token of gratitude since um, it was given to Subaru out of love, and considering that it seems like Echidna kind of has feelings for Subaru, <laughs> this is probably um, out of uh, love for him as well, trying to feel the same love that Petra felt for Subaru. Oh, that's, that's neat. Very sweet. That's kind of sweet. Um, Subaru then wakes up in the real world. Um, we originally thought that he was getting woken up by Amelia or Rom or Garfield or someone. But no, instead, it's because everything is in darkness and there's shadows in all the places. And we, he, he wakes up and looks around and he sees a, quote, a woman who is chanting, I love you to him. Oh, That's boy. not creepy at all. <laughs> no. So, so, yeah, when he first wakes up and, and you see everything is covered in darkness, I was like, wait, 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 hold up. What? What? What is going on here? Like that? This is this isn't supposed to be happening. What what's going on? And then, and then yeah, we hear the the creepy chanting of of I love you, I love you over and over again, and it was very unsettling. Yeah. Uh, luckily, before Subaru 
can have any misfortune befall him to this cloaked figure. Garfield saves him, of all people. Weird. Garfield, yeah. Um, and while Garfield's doing the saving, Subaru realizes that the cloaked woman is pri- probably the witch of Envy Zatella. And he what also knows that. What earth is she doing here? Yeah, he also notices that she seems to be walking towards Roswell's mansion, which, you know, is also where Elsa's attacking, possibly, either now or in the near future. Uh, coincidence? That's not good. Well, obviously not. Uh, it, we figured out a while ago that Elsa was part of the witch's cult, which makes yes. complete sense. Yes, um, it does. Yeah. The episode ends with Roswell wishing Subaru the best of luck while holding a black book that appears similar to the gospel, but is likely more of a, a tome of knowledge like um, what Beatrice has in her library. And we also learn that Roswell knows about Subaru's return by death. Like, um, so yeah, that's pretty neat. <laughs> wow. So someone else knows. That's, wow. That, I mean, it makes sense that Roswell does this. It does, it, it is hinted at in season one. Exactly. Yeah. And considering that we know that his family is related to Echidna and served under her in some way, it's likely due to him having the greed factor from Echidna. Yeah, which also makes sense. Because that's probably it probably makes him crave knowledge and considering that he's holding a tome of knowledge in his hands, it's very possible the tome of knowledge has contains the knowledge of Superhero's return by death inside it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It would also explain why Beatrice was protecting Subaru so much again in season one, is she likely knew about his return by death. Yeah, which, considering Beatrice didn't like him, it, it, it was very confusing why she was protecting him so much. But now that is, a, that is a good explanation. Yeah, so we have three episodes left in the first half of ReZero's second season. What do you think will happen next, Sean? Uh, I think two things will happen. First of all, I think, I think they're gonna, I think the we're gonna leave the sanctuary for good at, after these three episodes. Because let's be real, like it would be kind of, it wouldn't be great in my opinion if they spent the whole season two in the sanctuary. So I think, I think this, I think at the end of the first half, the sanctuary will be, they'll be gone. And that whole storyline will be wrapped up. And I think that Garfield's actually going to be, you know, maybe a pleasant a pleasant chap now. Oh, same. yeah, because the, the whole issue with Garfield and the reason why he captured Subaru in the previous episode, or I guess in episode six, seven? Episode seven. Seven. Yeah, um, was because he could smell the witch's scent on Subaru. And now with the actual Witch of Envy here and Subaru very obviously not being aligned with her, I don't think that will be the case this time around. Yeah, so that's that's at least kind of convenient. But what do you think will happen? I don't know. I'm guessing that, you know, the Witch of Envy isn't going to kill everyone. <laughs> that would be my best guess. Um, I think that Subaru is not going to die again. Because, again, um, Garfield's now aligned with him. They, they're going to directly go to the Roswell's mansion because that's where the Witch of Envy is headed, um, which would so, put them directly in contact with um, what's happening there in the mansion with Elsa showing up there, except now Garfield will be there. I imagine Rom will be there as well. 
So there will be more help, and maybe they'll be able to defeat Elsa. Maybe, and I imagine the Witch of Envy is going to do some weird things, but I don't know exactly what. Uh, what it's always Roswell's mansion in the end. Well, yeah, because I mean Roswell is um, aligned with Amelia, who is a direct target of the witch's cult. So this naturally, the mansion gets attacked a few times. <laughs> this is true. So that'll do it with the discussion for this episode of ReZero. Let's move on to the final topic, which is. The second to last episode of Golden Wind, and uh, okay, that was interesting. Did not expect what we saw. Yeah, so this is JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Golden Wind episode 38, or episode 151 of the show as a whole, Gold Experience Requiem. So, so Diablo is basically done. Yeah, you know, he got uh, quite a beating from a gold experience requiem in the end of the previous episode that we get again at the beginning of this one and it seems like he got away right he, he falls into the water he goes through the the gutters he winds up in the sewer he thinks that he uh, he's safe and then he gets stabbed and and mugged by by a random dude and dies oof um but he don't actually get to see his his his, his actual death as he, he reappears again by the side of a street looking in pain and shock and someone asks him if he's okay before he accidentally trips into the street and gets hit by a car. Or, well, we don't see the car actually hit him because then he gets sent to another seeming alternate reality and, well, it's assumed that he probably dies in this one too. Yeah, we, we see him waking up in a in a corner a uh, a hospital sort of place, and he is literally dissected. Yeah, while alive, feeling all the pain. Yep, that 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 yeah 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 yeah. Wow, that's bad. Yeah, like the moments after his death, like he didn't actually die, like his death didn't happen, but it's the moments after his death that he is experiencing. Ugh. Uh, that's that's awful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's. It seems like he's stuck in an infinite time loop of death. Yeah, thanks to Golden Experience Requiem, which would which, make sense because we did see when um he, he was in a race time, we did see an infinite number of Diavolos get hit by Golden Experience Requiem. So. Yeah, that's that's it for Diablo. He suffered a fate that is way worse than death because it isn't death. He doesn't get the release that death brings. So, justice? Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, he is literally the devil. I mean, the only way to really beat the devil is to just kind of get rid of him. <laughs> so. it's a good way to look at it. Yeah. We also see that King Crimson is heavily beaten during the fight against Golden Experience Requiem, which is likely why he was unable to use it this whole time. Yep. Um, but yeah, that's the end of Diavolo. It's going to be, it's kind of, I am slightly disappointed to see, uh, Cohen Goff's take on Diavolo end because definitely one of the, the more exciting villain portrayals that we've gotten in JoJo's, even if Diavolo was considerably weaker character wise than some of the other villains that we've gotten. Very true. So yeah, I thought this was a really fitting end. I also really like, um, uh, 
Giorno's explanation of Golden Experience Requiem. Like, he just knows that Diavolo um, is gone, that he's that um, something is happening to him, even though he doesn't know exactly what. Yeah, he, he's gone. Simple as that. Yeah. So then we backtrack a bit. Yeah. I mean, we also get the image, the amazing image of Bruno Abacchio and Narancia being in the clouds. No, oh, yes. Giorno mourning their loss, which is pretty cool. Yes. But yeah, we backtrack a bit. All the way back to before the pilot. Yeah, well, it's presumed that the events of this episode take place during the pilot before Bruno meets with Giorno on the train. Yes. Because Luca is already dead by this point. He is already dead. And yeah. we and we see all of them in a shop this, this, this discussing things, and then an old man comes to them for a request. Yeah, a florist who is asking for Bruno's help in avenging his dead daughter, who appeared to have committed suicide falling off of a balcony clutching a weird rock. And Bruno refuses at first, but then, even with all the money, but then he decides to accept eventually, and he and Misa go to investigate. Yeah, so they both, and Fugo as well, all three of them head to the place that her boyfriend was staying at to learn about him before deciding on acting on the actual revenge. On the way there, Mista notices a few strange rocks that that appear um, very similar to how the old man described the rock that his daughter was clutching when she committed suicide. Obviously, that can only mean one thing. A stand user. Yes, an enemy stand user. Um, so yeah, this is... And the, uh, they both... Uh, Mista and Bruno go in and investigate, and they notice weird, really weird stone, and it happens to be shaped like Bruno, and then the episode ends. <laughs> what did you think of them deciding to backtrack in the second-to-last episode of the show? I mean, it's interesting. I'm enjoying getting a smaller-scale story between um, some of the members of our main group. I liked seeing Fugo again. Um I think it's interesting that they're doing this. I imagine that it has some kind of implication for the overall story that we just don't know yet. Like, um, maybe, because my, my guess on what this stand does, because it took the shape of Bruno, and says it has to have something to do with the ending of Golden Wind that we're going to get in the next episode. I imagine that the stone's ability has something with um, fortune telling or being able to show the future. Which could explain some things that have some like some attitudes that Bruno has had throughout the show. Yeah, it could explain why Bruno was so willing to work with Giorno um, at the end of episode two, among other things. And it, it'll be interesting, like how how this like improves Mista's character because Mista's been at the center of this investigation. So I'm interested to see where they go with that. Yep. But yeah, one final enemy stand user to deal with in Golden Wind before the show ends. So a bit unorthodox compared to the, the finales of other parts of JoJo's. 
because Phantom Blood was was Dio killing Jonathan, getting his body. Uh, end of battle tendency was cars getting chucked in the outer space ball by a volcano. Yes, I just said that with the straight. And Joseph face. attending his own funeral. And Joseph attending his own funeral. I actually forgot about that. Uh, and the search procedures was uh, Star Platinum versus the world. And if DIU was was Kira getting run over by an ambulance, which is awesome. And this is we'll find out. Not sure. Well, how- yeah, because this I feel like this kind of acts as an epilogue story. So like the actual end of Golden Wind is the fight between Diablo and Jorno. This is kind of an extra story. And from what I have kind of done a bit of research on. It seems like the reason Araki added this to the end of Golden Wind was because he wanted to have something more lighthearted at the end of it. Well, it is nice. It is yeah. nice. Considering how much darker Golden Wind is compared to the other parts of JoJo. That's very true. All right. That, that is going to do it for episode eight of Nerd Explosion on the Candy Clark podcast. Sure, check out the Candy Clark Spotify, CandyClark.com. Uh, final question: uh, What what content uh, can viewers and readers look forward to upcoming? Yeah, so I know I'll be covering um, the Boys season two at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, and I'm also going to be putting out an article on the most recent issue of Avengers sometime later this week. So that'll be exciting. Be sure to check that out at the CandyClark.com. I was your host. The Ken Clark himself, Sean Clark, John Wintrope. Have a have a great rest of your day. See you next week.